I'm actually going to read chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 for context, and then I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. So uh, beginning in Genesis 2, verse 15, and then we'll skip ahead to chapter 3. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to your word today desiring not just instruction, but wisdom, Lord. Not just words, but words that lead us to life, Lord. Not just an understanding of what you require, but Lord, to understand what you have given to your people by your grace, by the blood of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that your grace would fill this place, that your spirit would lead this time, that you would be glorified in all that we say and do, be exalted in carpentry of the coastlands and the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I have been a baseball fan my entire life. I know baseball isn't the most popular sport uh, of sports to like. People think that it's boring, and let's be honest, it's kind of long, and there are some rules that are weird. Um, I've never remember actually learning the rules of baseball. Growing up in a family that watched baseball, I felt like they were always there. I'm sure I did. I'm sure I asked my dad questions or things like that. And I learned the game as we went. But there are some rules that seem normal to me that when other people experience them for the first time, they're, they're strange. My favorite thing at Little League games early in the season is hearing parents be so confused about a dropped third strike. And if you're a baseball fan, this guy right here, you get it. A dropped third strike. Everyone knows that in baseball, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out. Unless that third strike is dropped by the catcher and then the batter can steal first base. If he can make it to first base before the catcher can throw the ball to first base, he is safe. It is one of those evidences that convince me that baseball was invented by children who are just arbitrarily making up rules as they go along. Like, 
a foul ball is a strike unless there's two strikes and you can foul the ball off as much as you want. But don't bunt it foul because you'll be out. Just created by children in the streets. And so some of the rules in baseball seem arbitrary. Now, there are rules, in, uh, commands in Scripture that can sometimes feel arbitrary. They feel like ancient relics of a bygone era. But the laws of God are not arbitrary. They have a beautiful purpose. There's actually a reason for the drop third strike rule that we don't have time to get into now. But if you care, you can talk to me later. Um, the rules, the commands of God in Scripture have a beautiful purpose. A purpose that would be good for the church today to remember. The first thing I want us to see, actually, before, before we get into our time today, um, as we talk about God's law, it may be tempting to assume that I am advocating for total legal obedience to the Old Testament law. I am not. Okay? I am advocating for total loving obedience to God. Total loving obedience never becomes something undesirable for God's people. Okay, Not because we're saved by our ability to follow the rules. We are saved by grace. We are saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We should be amening that. You can say amen. But God's character is revealed through what he commands. And so it's good for us to receive this instruction so that we can experience his character in his word. And so the first thing I want us to understand about God's law from our text is that God's law is always preceded by God's grace. God's law is always preceded by God's grace. Always. It is always preceded by God's grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's God's commitment to faithfulness and to the good of his people before his people can do anything to deserve it. And so look right here. God makes the humans... Okay, and before they can do anything, good or bad, he plants a beautiful garden, a, a paradise of delights, fills it with, with delicacy and treasures unimaginable. And then before they can do anything to deserve that, he just places them there. He gives them everything that they need for life and for beauty and for wonder and to experience God's presence in the garden. And he just gives it to them. And he gives them the fruit of every tree in the garden. All of the sweet things in life are a gift from God to the people in Eden. That is grace, unmerited favor. It's like when a family is expecting a baby and the child has done nothing good. It's only made mom sick and uncomfortable. And even when it's born, like it's just like a ball of hunger and the other side of hunger. 
before they can do anything good, they still, they, 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 they set up the nursery and they fill it with life and, and, and color and light and toys. And they're, they're so excited and they love this child that they've never met before because the baby belongs to them made in the image of God and so beautiful. They celebrate the child before it can do anything good or bad. And so this is the picture here in Genesis. The humans are God's children for whom he has made an entire world and filled it with desirable things. It's undeserved. It's a gift of grace. And this is the way God always works. Always. This is always the way God works. His law is always preceded by his grace. Even when God gives Israel the Ten Commandments in the wilderness, they came after God saved them from Egypt. God saves, and then he invites them to follow his righteousness and his character in his law. Grace came first. He saves them first, and then he gives them the law. And so when we come to the New Testament, it's the same thing. We don't earn our salvation. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinning against God, God did for us the most gracious, beautiful, wonderful, generous thing we could possibly imagine. He died for us. Okay, there's no deserving in that. There's no earning in that. That is unmerited, undeserved favor. God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And he died for you because he wants good things for you, regardless of what you've done or what you will do. Grace, undeserved. And grace, undeserved cannot be deserved or undeserved. It's just generously provided for you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And yet Jesus in Luke 6, 46 says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? See, sometimes we come to the New Testament and we go, yeah, legal obedience, like God's law, his commands, they don't, they don't matter anymore, right? Jesus certainly thinks some sort of obedience, some sort of command still matters. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me King? Why do you say I have sovereignty over your life? And then when I tell you to do something or tell you not to do something, you just disregard it. Is that treating him as Lord? See, the implication is that if you truly know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will desire to do what he commands. And so it's tempting to assume that since God's commitment to humanity is unmerited, it's, it's tempting to ask, then why does he give commands at all? Okay, let's go back to the garden. If, if grace is unmerited, why is there a command at all? Why did he even put the tree there? Or why isn't the tree like behind lock and key somewhere? Why does he command them not to eat it? Why does he give commands at all? And so we'll see this in our text. Remember, this command in the garden, it gives us insight into all of God's commands. If you want to know uh, about a word or a concept in scripture, the best place to start is the first time that word or concept shows up. And so this text, we have the very first, thou shalt not. We're familiar, thou shalt not from the 10 commandments, from the King James. This is the first time God says in the King James, 
version, thou shalt not eat of the fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so this, we have an invitation to see as a prototype God's heart in all of his commands, in all of his prohibitions, in all of his law. And so what I want us to see is that God's law is not only preceded by grace, but it is instruction in wisdom. Okay, law is not the way to be saved. Grace is how we are saved, but God's commands are still good because they instruct us in wisdom. Okay, the key to understanding this in the text is to see Adam and Eve again like children of God. They are like innocent children. Now, we can argue about whether or not children are innocent or natural-born killers, but we can't with Adam and Eve. This was before sin. They are innocent. They are blameless, okay? They are innocent. They are unexperienced in both good and evil. They're like little children. Think about it. Who else can be naked and unashamed? Little children, Okay, and then as we become more self-aware, we desire to cover ourselves. Children are also those in Scripture who do, are, are said to not know good and evil. Okay, listen to how Moses describes children in Deuteronomy 139. And as for your little ones and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go into the land. So Adam and Eve are like children in here. Now, I don't... I don't uh, I'm not saying that they are children, but they're like children. They are innocent. They do not know good and evil. And so in this context, the knowledge of good and evil is the wisdom to discern right from wrong, good from bad. It's something that children acquire as they grow up and follow their parents' instruction and they begin to learn from their parents what is good and what is not good. And the knowledge of good and evil is never portrayed as a bad thing in Scripture outside of this passage. The knowledge of good and evil is never described as a bad thing outside of this passage. Rather, it is a good sign of maturity and something to be desired. In fact, it's the very thing that King Solomon asks for when he asks God for wisdom. First Kings 3. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? He asks for something good. God answers his prayer. See, God doesn't come to Solomon and say, whoa, easy there, Solomon. Knowledge of good and evil, the right to discern good and evil, that is my job. Stay in your lane, Solly boy. No, God answers his prayer. He gives him the ability to discern good and evil because knowledge of good and evil is not, necess- is not, is not a bad desire. Listen, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil does not represent the desire for something wrong. Okay, it represents the desire for something good that is acquired the wrong way. 
And the tree of knowledge of good and evil does not represent the desire for something wrong. It, does, it represents the desire of something good that is acquired the wrong way. There's an illustration of this from the New Testament. When Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, one of the temptations is that the devil takes him up to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and says, all of these I will give to you if you just bow down and worship me. Now, I'll ask you a question. Is it wrong for Jesus to desire or possess the kingdoms of the world? No. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He will inherit the nations. They, they, they belong to him. He is their sovereign ruler. It is not wrong for Jesus to want them or desire them. What would have been wrong is for Jesus to acquire them from the hand of Satan rather than through God's plan of sacrificial redemption of them. So what we have in the tree of knowledge of good and evil is something that is good, maturity, wisdom. The question is, will the human beings receive that wisdom from trusting God in his commandment to not eat? Or will they reach out their hand, take it for themselves, and shrug off God's authority over them? It represents the desire for something good that is acquired the wrong way. See, Adam and Eve would eventually receive the knowledge of good and evil if they remained obedient and faithful and worshiped and obeyed God. This is how children today learn right from wrong, by trusting the rules of their parents. And so Adam and Eve were to trust that God knew what was good, that he would give them what was good that he would protect them from what was not good. They even had an example of this, right? God makes the world good, declares it all good. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, and then says, it's not good that the man should be alone. And then he remedies it. So they should have known anything in this world that is not good, we can trust God to fix. They had evidence that that was true. We can trust God to fix this. And so as they lived in that relationship with God and they learned the things that they could eat and not eat and do and not do, although there was only one prohibition, they would learn to depend on God for everything. And they would learn through that wisdom. Again, this applies to all of God's commands. Listen to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom. Keeping the commandments, doing the commandments will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. See, as they obeyed the commandments, as they learned from God what was good, what was not good, and they practiced that righteousness, they would learn wisdom. See, wisdom is skillful living. Wisdom is applying 
what we know to be true about life to our life. Wisdom is understanding not just how to know good and evil, but it is applied to our lives so that we live righteously, so that we live according to God's design, so that we live according to his purposes, so that we reflect his character as we were made in the image of God. Wisdom is is living life skillfully. And this means that God's law instructs in wisdom, so it would be wise of us to receive it. See, the truth is that there are many people who will call themselves Christians who show no concern, no concern for obedience to God's righteous commands, whether in the Old Testament law or the New Testament. And we know, hey, I'm saved by grace, not by the law. Yes and amen. Praise God for that. But then they show no concern for living a life that actually reflects their Savior. And there are plenty of commands in the New Testament. Even, you know, from Jesus, right? Commands to love one another. That's a command. We should obey. Came from the mouth of our Savior. There are prohibitions uh, uh, in the New Testament, even after Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. Prohibitions against sexual immorality, prohibitions against hatred, theft, lying, drunkenness. In case you are wondering, that includes intoxication by other substances. Prohibitions. Thou shalt not do these things. And it's not as though Jesus came and just created anarchy. Like, hey, I died for you guys. Live however you want because nothing matters. That's not Jesus. That's not what he did. Okay, there's plenty of commands in the New Testament. Yet so many people who call themselves Christians are living just like the rest of the world in these areas and in many others. And they'll say, I'm saved by grace. The law doesn't apply to me. Yes, but you are also squandering your opportunity to learn wisdom. You are squandering wisdom away. And according to scripture, that makes you a fool. Proverbs 10, 23, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. We think that we can go out and pursue all of these things that we have declared good, that God has said are not good, that that true pleasure is going and experiencing these things. And God's word says doing wrong is like a joke to someone who's a fool. But our pleasure is in uh, wisdom is, is pleasure to a man of understanding, to someone who follows God. And so the serpent fooled Adam. He fooled Eve by making them believe that they could be wise apart from God, that they could discern good and evil for themselves. And church, we will not be fooled. Do not be fooled into thinking that you can achieve some wisdom that is beyond God's wisdom and God's context for us. Don't be fooled. See, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. God had already said, you shall not eat of it. Not good. Don't do this. But even before she bites, 
she has already begun to discern good and evil for herself. And so the world that we live in today is a world that calls evil good and good evil. We've got it all mixed up. And we, 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 we celebrate things that grieves God's heart. Just turn on the news and see the wickedness of the world. And they think that they're doing something good. She sees that the tree was good. She takes it and she eats it and she gives some to her husband. And their eyes are opened and into the world comes shame and pain and death. See, not only is God's law instruction in wisdom, but God's law is an invitation to live, an invitation that they forfeited when they chose to disobey. See, had they obeyed God, they would have been permitted to eat from the tree of life and live forever. But because of their disobedience, they're cast away from the tree of life and effectively they're sentenced to death. And this is, again, the same for all of God's commands. This is a prototype. We get to see God's heart in his law through this first rule in the garden. But listen to how it applies to the law in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 30, 15 through 18. See, I have set before you today life and, uh, life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, I am commanding you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and statutes and his rules, then you will live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Moses says, I'm putting before you good and evil, life and death. Take your pick. Will you submit to God's authority? Submit to his rule in your life. Submit to his sovereignty by following the laws that he has put forward for you today. If you do that, you'll live. It'll go well for you. Or will you reject him, cast off his rule, cast off his authority, live however you please, and experience the death that comes from that? I put before you good and evil, life and death. See how this first commandment in the garden, we have God's heart for every command in Scripture. It's this little microcosm of God's law. His law is always given in the context of grace. His law is always uh, given for instruction in wisdom. And it's an invitation to live abundantly, an abundant life. Because it, 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 it outlines the way life works best. So God gives us a picture of the way our lives are supposed to look, the way our lives are supposed to work in submission to him and in love and, and, and faithfulness to one another. And so all life works best with God in authority. And so ultimately, as I mentioned last week, what Satan accomplished by the temptation in the garden was convincing Adam and Eve that it's better to live in autonomy from God than in dependence upon God. 
He fools them. He says, God's holding out on you. These rules aren't fair. These rules, he doesn't have your best interest in mind. You would be better off out from underneath his authority. So go ahead and take it. This is what our culture teaches today. It's why I resisted faith for years as a young man. There's too many things that I liked to do that I wasn't going to be allowed to do anymore. And that just didn't sound like any fun. Christians were boring. There's too much that I was going to have to give up or, or too much that I wanted to be able to do that I wasn't going to be able to do. And, and so I, I, I didn't want to submit to God's rule. I wanted to be autonomous. I wanted to be my own rule. That's what autonomy means. It's self-law. I wanted to be my own law for myself. And some of you are here and you're not a believer. I'm so thankful that you're here and you're listening to the word of God today. But I'm willing to bet that a significant factor prohibiting faith is not that you can't believe. You can't make that intellectual assent to faith. It's that you don't want to believe. And I get it. It was there with you. You don't want to believe because you know that if you did, your life would have to change. And there are some things that you enjoy today that would have to change. And that's a scary thought. It really is. Don't let anyone downplay that for you. Okay, sometimes we're like, that thing that you enjoy, that thing that, that you don't want to let go of, it's nothing. And I believe that. It's nothing in comparison with, with Jesus. But you don't know that yet. You haven't trusted in that yet. And so it's scary to think of this thing that you enjoy not being something that you can enjoy anymore. I get that. It's scary. And if you're here today and you're a believer and you're struggling to give up the sinful pleasures that you've grown accustomed to, it's not that you can't give them up. It's that you don't want to give them up. It's like when I was younger and my dad was trying to quit smoking. He looked at me one day and he said, I just don't want to. I'll never forget it. He said, he said cigarettes are my friends. They're always there for me when I need them. My dad's friends killed him. Okay, our sin is killing us. It feels good. It feels like it's there when we need it, but it is eroding. It's eroding us, just, just destroying us from the inside out. If you're wanting to experience God's closeness again, but shame and from your sin keeps it hidden from you, I want to invite you into the life that God invites you into today. And I'm willing to bet that if this is you, if this is, you've got, you know, like, well, I can follow Jesus or I can keep doing these things and I don't know what to do. I'm willing to bet that the enemy creeps into your thought process and tries to convince you not that you shouldn't believe, but he tries to convince you that you don't believe. You don't really believe that. You don't really believe this. If you believed this, then you wouldn't do the thing that you're doing. 
But since you want to do that, you're not really who you say you are. If that sounds familiar, it's because I too know the lies of the enemy. I hear his voice as well. You don't want to believe this. You don't believe this. You don't think this is bad for you. And he invites us to reach out and grasp autonomy. To hold on to the life that we were meant to live. To take a bite of the forbidden fruit. To eat the sweet things that God is keeping from us. And so he invites us to free ourselves from God's tyranny. And it's a lie. See, life is only found with God. It came from God. It was meant to be lived with God and in submission to God. But we love autonomy. We value autonomy as a culture. We don't want anyone ruling over us. It's been taught to us since the Declaration of Independence. We have this value of autonomy. In fact, if you look up autonomy in a thesaurus, one of the opposites, one of the antonyms is imprisonment. That's what our culture teaches. If you are not autonomous, if you are not the master of your own destiny, if anyone rules over you, you are a prisoner. And so we love autonomy. And so that's what the world teaches, that submission to God's rule means. It means you're a prisoner. You're not autonomous. This is actually illustrated very well in the 1998 Jim Carrey film, The Truman Show. Now, I know it's 25 years ago, okay? So, uh, Westmont kids, um, spoiler alert, okay? You should still go see it, but I'm going to tell you how it ends. You had 25 years. You've had your whole life, okay? The Truman Show. It's excellent. Uh, Truman Burbank, played by the illustrious Jim Carrey, is, was adopted as a child by a film director named Christoph. And Christoph has built the largest television studio on the planet. It is basically an entire world where everything that Truman needs is right there in that world that he has made. And so from the time he was a baby, he was raised in this world by actors where his life is broadcast 24 hours a day across the world. And on the surface, everything that Christoph has made for Truman was made for him, for his good, for his protection, for his safety. Uh, uh, He's generously provided for. And as far as Truman knew, he had a good life. He had everything that he needed, including a wife and friends. However, none of it was real. none, None of it was real. Even those closest to him were paid actors and their role was more than just acting. They were Christoph's way of controlling Truman and preventing him from learning the truth. But then many people in the world who are watching this 24 hours a day, they're sympathetic to Truman. They want to see him freed from this world. They want him to have an opportunity to live a normal life and free from the ever watchful eye of the creator, Christoph. So one day a woman 
a former actor in Truman's life, sneaks back into Truman's world and attempt to, attempts to open his eyes to the, the false reality of his world. And so Truman believes her and decides to make the decision to flee. And when he does finally escape, the entire world erupts with celebration as he experiences for the first time autonomy. And we watching shed a tear as well because it's pulling on the the strings of our heart that what we truly need in this world is autonomy. And so on the surface, the Truman Show is just, it's good entertainment, but beneath the surface, many have noticed a much more sinister agenda. Did you notice? It's a perversion of Genesis 3. Many theologians and scholars and and film students have identified this, that a human being, a true man, is is placed into what seems to be a good world and uh, a former actor, a, a former servant, a former messenger who is opposed to this world that, that Christoph or Christ of Truman's world has made, sneaks into the world to open the true man's eyes to get him to leave that world where real life will finally be experienced. And when it happens, the woman, Sylvia, in the movie, she's celebrated. She's the serpent. She's the serpent who opens his eyes and gets him to reject the world that his creator had made for him. Now, here's the problem with the Truman Show. The creator did not have Truman's best interest in mind. The assumption is that God has made this world in a way that serves himself. But that's not what we have in Scripture. And so it gets it twisted. The moral of the Truman story is that God is not good and the humans are not free as long as they submit to God's rule. And so we're all tempted to believe the lies that the enemy spins for us, that this world or that that a world of obedience to God is really oppression. And what you really need is autonomy. You will be happy, free from God. But it's a lie, because the world of good things is the world the humans gave up when they rejected God's authority. They had good. They had all that they needed in submission and dependence upon God. And they gave it up when they decided to disobey. And so we continue to uh, resist the good world that God has made, the good life, every time we think that we know good and evil better than God. When God's word says don't and we do, when God's word says do and we don't, we are demonstrating that we believe that we have a wisdom that is greater than God's wisdom that invites us into a life greater than the life that God can give us. 
And so we're stranded outside of the world and no amount of obedience to the law can gain us access now that we have let sin into our world and into our hearts. And so if God were to let us back in, he would be letting us, he would be letting sin back in right along with us. And so not only is the law preceded by grace, not only is the law instruction in wisdom, not only does it invite us to life, but God's law points us to our need for a savior. See, the problem with the Truman Show is that the, 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 the creator is not good. But in our world, our creator is good. He's provided everything for us. And so in order to restore us to the world that he was made for, he enters into our world. He is the true man, Jesus, who comes into our world and lives a life in perfect submission to God's authority, to his law, to his rule. He lives the life that you and I just can't live. He's righteous. He's holy. He's wise. He's obedient. And so he enters into our world of brokenness, fulfills the law on our behalf. Jesus does not abolish the law. He fulfills the law. And the life that he deserves for his faithfulness, the life that is promised in obedience to the law, he lays down. Talk about a good God. He lays it down, says, hey, I will trade this for that. Your disobedience, my righteousness, let's trade. The death that you deserve, The life that I deserve, let's trade. Jesus is the only one who didn't deserve to die, and he goes to the cross. Doesn't just die, but dies the ugliest death imaginable so that you could know a life that you don't have the capacity to imagine. And he invites us back in. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the way back into the world that we squandered. He is the way back into the wisdom that we turned away from. The cross is said to be the wisdom and power of God. And Jesus is to us as a tree of life that we can take and receive and have abundant life and live forever. And so when we look to the law, we don't see the thing that can save us. When we look to the law, we see the thing we need. We see the reason we need a savior. And look, I just want to, say this just just for the sake of argument, even if we could be saved by the law, even if you could be saved by perfect legal obedience, it still came from God. 
so you can't save yourself. Look, if you're drowning and somebody throws you a life raft and you climb in, you, can't, you don't get to say you saved yourself. Okay, somebody else saved you. They gave you the thing to save you. So even if you could be saved by the law, it still came from God. You're still saved by God. You need a savior. We need God to save us. And he has. He has. Jesus has saved us from our sin where we deserve death for sin. Jesus has given us life and righteousness because of his love for us. He set us free from the penalty of sin. And so through faith in Jesus, we're not only saved from our sin, but we are commanded as Jesus commands the woman who is caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Church, if you have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sins, you are forgiven. You stand before God righteous. You have been declared innocent. God looks at you through the blood of Christ and says, in you, I am well pleased. And he also says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And he says also, a new command I give to you. Jesus gives commands. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He has the authority to tell you what to do. He tells you, love one another. A new command I give to you. Love one another. It's preceded by grace. He has saved us by grace. Loving one another is instruction in wisdom. We would be wise to love one another. To love one another as Christ has loved us. To lay down our lives. To sacrifice. To serve the other person's good. It's instruction in wisdom. It's an invitation to life. The true life, the good life that you are meant to live is a life of love for God and love for one another. And it also points us to our need for a savior because we don't. We don't love each, each other perfectly. We don't love one another the way Christ has loved us, but that is not an excuse to stop trying. It's a reason to depend further on his grace, to recognize what he has done to love us so that we might love one another. Reality Carpentry, may you be known. May we be known by our faith in Jesus that does produce righteousness and wisdom and fills us with life. May we love one another as Christ has loved us. This is the law of Christ. This is the command of Christ, and it is good news. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your character, your righteousness, your wisdom is revealed in all of your word. God, we thank you that our hearts are, are revealed in all of your word. As we read it, it's like a mirror. We recognize where we don't reflect you. 
But God, we thank you that in your word, we have the grace that we need when we recognize that we don't reflect you. We have the grace that we need. We have the salvation that we so desperately long for because the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, you entered our world and you did what we could not, what no human being has ever done. And God, we just say, thank you. You are worthy. You are worthy of life. You are worthy of glory. You are worthy of all honor, all praise. So we celebrate you, Lord. You are worthy of our praise, even if you didn't save us, but you saved us. How much more will we erupt with gratitude and thanksgiving? Lord, stir us up to worship you. Stir us up to sing your praise. Stir us up to receive your wisdom, to receive the life that you give your people who call upon your name for salvation. God, and stir up in us a joy for obedience because we know it's what we were made for. is the way we are meant to live. God, stir us up and empower us to live according to your good ways. God, I pray that if there's anyone in here struggling with, with condemnation for their sin, that you'd set them free. And set them on to a path of joyful obedience. Because our righteousness has already been provided. We just need to put one foot in front of the other and walk in it. God, restore in us a desire to live a life of righteousness for your glory.